Welcome to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron, our year-long series, looking at the history of the NFL told through its greatest rivalries and told by the players and coaches and executives who lived through those rivalries. Coming up today, Super Bowl Four and its significance to black players in the NFL. This is the NFL 100 show. Hello, welcome to the NFL 100 show. Will Gavin, my favourite NFL historian, Matt Sherry, uh, alongside me from Hartlepool, uh, coming up on the show today as we look at the Kansas City Chiefs' uh, inaugural Super Bowl victory, and only up until this point, over the Minnesota Vikings. We'll be hearing from Dave Robinson, Lee Steinberg, Bobby Bell, Clark Hunt, Harry Carson, Tony Dungy and Doug Williams, some of the most significant players uh, from the history of the NFL. And... Matt Sherry, I alluded to it in the intro, but this isn't necessarily a look at the history of the Kansas City Chiefs or the Minnesota Vikings. It's significant for a number of other reasons. Yeah, I mean, uh, the reason most people consider it significant is because it was it was the second win in a row for the AFL in, against the NFL, pre the final merger structure as well. So it, it had a real impact on on just how that structure took shape. But one of the one of the least talked about parts of it, and one that we will touch on in a magazine piece hopefully this year, because it's 50 years since this season and this Super Bowl uh, this year, is that it was the first championship won by a team where more than half the starters were black. And, you know, when I, I've written a chapter in the book that's specifically about the, the history of black players in the NFL. And, and really, I, I, I was torn between this and when Doug Williams became the first black quarterback to win the Super Bowl. Um, this one is the more niche one and the one that people don't necessarily realise as much. But yeah, it was certainly one of the most significant moments in that journey. So let's talk about what the, the kind of history of black players in the NFL, because it, it's, uh, it, it was over quite a period of time it took for, uh, for uh, the league to become integrated and, and for, from the point where we had the first black player to the point where we were getting this first team where it was over half the players were black. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interesting part is that the, 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 arguably the first start of the league's opening season was black in Fritz Pollard, who subsequently was became a Hall of Famer, a, a guy who was a, a halfback slash quarterback, also a coach, you know, and a great player. But it, the league actually segregated in, in 1934. It was 1920 when the league started. And and, and I guess a, a big reason for that is is George Preston Marshall, who was the owner of the, of the Washington team. Um, he... Basically coincided with him entering the league. Now you can't say for certain he was the sole reason because the other owners had to agree to it, and it wasn't as if segregation in sports leagues was uncommon at the time. You know, it was actually uncommon for them not to be segregated. But you know, Preston Marshall's attitude, I guess, was best summed up by him famously saying that the NFL would start signing whites when the Harlem Globe Trotters signed that the NFL would start signing black players when the Harlem Globe Trotters signed white players and, and, and I think that summed it up and, and, and over that period then we see lots of great players lost to, to history I mean the most famous exa- example was probably Kenny Washington who both Jackie Robinson his UCLA teammate who became the guy who broke the colour line in baseball and Bob Waterfield d- described as the greatest player that they'd ever seen you know he was 
he should have been an NFL player, but ended up playing in the Pacific Football League, and 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 he ends up actually, ironically, being the the, the guy who breaks the segregation. So the reason that the league desegregated was because um, the Cleveland Rams, who were the who were the um, defending NFL champions, were moving to to Los Angeles, and and the Coliseum Commission said that they would only let them move there if they signed black players. So that's what they did. They signed Kenny Washington, who who by that point was was a real shadow of his former self, still played well, but was nowhere near the player he was when he left the draft. And, and that happens in, in 1945. And, and even then, the journey isn't, isn't quite so quick. And aside on Kenny Washington is that I think he should be a Hall of Famer. I really hope, I've not really seen him considered as one, but I, I think he should be just because it was just a great lost career and he played a significant part in, in the league story by being the first guy when it desegregated. But separate to that, you know, there's this process of gradually other teams sign black players as well, and then, and then by 1945, every team is is desegregated, barring one, and that one team again, bringing us back to the Preston Marshall point, is is Washington, and 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 I guess this hits a a bit of a crescendo in 1960 when Sally Povich of the of the Washington Post writes a, an incredible match report of their game against the against the Cleveland Browns and and I'm just going to read a little bit of that it says for 18 minutes the Redskins were enjoying equal rights with the Cleveland Browns yesterday in the sense that there was no score in the contest then it suddenly became unequal in favour of the Browns who brought along Jim Brown their rugged coloured fullback from Syracuse from 25 yards out Brown was served the ball by Mitt Plum on a pitch out and he integrated the Redskins goal line with more than <laughs> deliberate speed perhaps exceeding the famous Supreme Court decree. Brown fled the 25 yards like a man in an uncommon hurry and the Redskins goal line at least became interracial. Now that sums up the mood that was that was around DC at the time and the mood around football generally and then it, even after that it takes another two years so 17 years after the league desegregated Washington finally signed a black player in 1962 the only reason they did is because President John F Kennedy intervened um, and basically threatened to not let them use the stadium in Washington that was built on federal land and and yeah, and then eventually they draft Ernie Davis from Syracuse, which is a tragic story in itself. So Davis refuses to play for Washington, is traded to the Browns and actually gets cancer and never ever plays in the NFL. Um, but within that trade, they got two black players back and, and eventually they desegregated in in 1962 so so this was the the, the specter of, of everything the players who came up in that era you know that's what they dealt with and 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 let's let's hear a little bit about that first of all from a guy we've heard on a, on a couple of these podcasts Dave Robinson the Hall of Fame linebacker from the Green Bay Packers and and he talks about what it was like going into that Green Bay locker room at the time as a black player and 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 kind of how apprehensive he was going into the building the 60s were a very trying time. We had race relations at the all-time low, I'd say. It was, it was a lot of tension going on. But Vincent Barty, Vincent Barty should have been a coach in the National Football year, leagues, years before. He should have had a major coaching job years before that. But he was being held back because he was an Italian. Yeah. And then one, one, one owner told him right to his face, he said, we're just not ready to have an Italian head coach here. And so... Vince had understood what it was like. He he was even on the other side, wasn't it? Uh, so many so many people in the sixties, uh, uh, Caucasians in the sixties, 
that I met, they, they said that they didn't really, really they, they didn't want to discriminate against blacks, but it, you know, they could, maybe the, the blacks could, uh, could adapt to it or something. They don't understand what discrimination really is. They don't understand what the pains and heartaches that discrimination causes. And Vince Lombardi did. He had experienced it, and so he knew it, and he didn't have well, none of that with his team. So he uh, nipped it in the bud. And the, when there was nothing, I, I was when I was drafted, I was uh, shocked to see how many people from the South played on the Green Bay Packers team, from Texas especially. And I thought, man, I went to the wrong team. Because in college, every time I went south of Mason-Dixon line to play a football game, I got I got trouble, had big troubles. And I said, now I'm going to be playing with a bunch of these guys. I don't know if I can do it or not. And I got here and I found out the guys in Green Bay, under the toolage of Vince somebody, he had taught them that we don't care what color guy is. We don't care if he's red, black, pink, purple, brown, yellow, anything. All we want to know can he block and can he tackle? And that was a that was a mindset in the whole in the whole organization. Not just the football players, but I'm talking about the office personnel, the trainers, the equipment men, everybody. There's no differentiation between white and black. All they want to know is can you block and tackle or you're a good football player. And that's what Vince somebody instilled in this whole organization. And it, it remains to this day. Uh, Dave Robinson speaking there to us on the NFL 100 show. As, as Matt was saying, he's becoming a familiar voice to you. Lots of big names still to come up. But let's talk about this. Uh, let's talk about the AFL and, and Lamar Hunt. Because Robinson at least played in a time when, when opportunities existed, which hadn't been the case previously. And it's true that the, the kind of 1960s was a time when the doors started to open. Yeah, it was, and it, and it wasn't just the NFL. In fact, the NFL still lagged a long way behind the AFL, which is, which which really provided more opportunities, and 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 there was no team that exemplified that more than the than the founder Lamar Hunt's Chiefs, um, or, or the Dallas Texans as they were in the first couple of years. Um, they employed the, the the first ever black scout in the NFL in Lloyd Wells, um, and 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 I guess what separated them more than anything is that the the mining of of traditionally black colleges so hbcus as they were called which is historically black colleges and universities you know they found a lot of great players by by mining that system i mean the nfl had, had signed um, tank younger from from gramlin university a few years before that but it didn't really open the floodgates in the way that it, it would later on and and yeah, so let's let's hear from Lamar Hunt's son Clark, who who really talks about how his father was colorblind and 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 the opportunities that he that he afforded black players. Right. Uh, the narrative in those early years of the merger between the AFL and the NFL was that the NFL teams were far superior. And of course, it didn't help that uh, my dad's Chiefs lost Super Bowl one, and then Vince Lombardi's Packers won Super Bowl two as well. And that narrative began to shift with Super Bowl three, with Joe Namath and the Jets <clears throat> winning that game, and you know Joe famously guaranteeing the victory. But after that game, the media really treated it as a one-off. It, it, it was not something that was indicative of the level of play in the AFL. And so it was important for uh, the Chiefs and the AFL uh, to come out on top of Super Bowl Four. It, it was something that my dad uh, looked back on with a lot of appreciation because it concluded that era of the AFL uh, with the series tied at two wins for the AFL and two wins for the NFL and really validated the fact that the 
uh, AFL teams were just as good as the NFL teams, uh, which, of course, that proved true over the, the next several decades. Um, and then you touched on the fact that that 1969 Chiefs team that won Super Bowl IV um, was the first uh, Super Bowl team to, to have predominantly or have a majority African-American athletes on it, uh, which was you know very much groundbreaking at, at the time. And, and I think the Chiefs and the AFL in general really played a role in integrating uh, the National Football League. Um, and of course, here here we are, uh, fifty years later, um, and the and the game has grown on on many many uh, fronts, um, including including the prevalence uh, of people of different backgrounds in all facets of the business. Yeah, and I mean, as as somebody who's kind of taken that torch and is is steward in the team now, you must be incredibly pr- proud of that history. I mean, you know, the first black scout, that that kind of unearthing all these players in historically black colleges that the NFL really wasn't doing. And just the legacy is the whole league in terms of how many guys it gave that opportunity to. And obviously also one of the first to have a a black middle linebacker as well. There's a lot of of elements there where you guys were really at the forefront of of that movement at that time. Uh, Yeah, we were. And it's not something I I ever had an in-depth conversation with my dad about, but... Uh, his friends told me that uh, he was really colorblind. You know, he, he saw everybody uh, as equal, which uh, for those who knew my dad, that was really just the kind of person he was. Uh, and he wasn't trying to make a statement. Um, uh, football games, and it didn't matter you know where you came from or what the color of your skin was if if you were the best player you know, he wanted that that player or that coach or that scout to be part of the Kansas City Chiefs um, so he was really ahead of his time uh, in a lot of ways on that but I, I think it really just you know sort of speaks to his underlying character. Clark Hunt speaking with the NFL 100 show. You're listening to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron. I look back at the history of the NFL and we're discussing a particularly significant game, Super Bowl four, and its significance as being the first game with a roster of over 50% black players. And let's hear from one of the stars of that team, Bobby Bell, who spoke with myself, Matt and Ollie back at Super Bowl 50. The best thing ever happened, you know, is that the Lamar Hunt started the AFL, you know. That gave the... the, the, uh, Call it, you know, players are opportunity to play because that's what we recruited for the American League. We recruited for a lot of the blacks, and they right to this day they wouldn't get a they wouldn't have had an opportunity to play because back then they didn't have black quarterbacks, they didn't have black middle guard and linebacker, they didn't have safeties, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And now you look at it on the field, they got them. They gave them an opportunity to, to show them that they can play quarterback any position on the field, you know. And uh, that's what's good about it today, you know, is that they, they get an opportunity to play and show. And, and one, one thing I wanted to ask about Super Bowl Four was how significant a victory was that? Because obviously the Jets had beat Baltimore and a lot of people thought that was a fluke and then you guys went and won again and suddenly the league merger happens a lot quicker. <clears throat> well, the thing is about that is that the uh, you know when the Jets beat the Colts, yeah, they said, "Oh, wait a minute!" And then the next year, Kansas City was a wild card, yeah, and we had to go and play the Jets, which was a World Championship the year before, and then we had to go play Oakland, which beat us twice that year. We was yep. a wild card, 
And what we told the people is that in the offense, Lenny Dawson didn't play seven games. We told him, say, we don't think these guys can score more than six points on us. Yeah. And that's when we went in and played the Vikings. We was underdog like 17 points. We went out there and we dominated the game. That's when the, yeah. AF, the NFL said, uh-oh, these guys here to stay. So we need to join. Bobby Bell speaking with myself, Matt Sherry, Ollie Hunter back at Super Bowl 50. Uh, so for all that Super Bowl 4 was a big moment, though, for back players, Sherry, it's, it certainly wasn't the end point. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, one of the interesting parts of that Bobby Bell audio is when we talked to him about the fact that um, that he was a quarterback when he was when he was younger, and and that was the next frontier, I guess, for for black players was there, there was really a thought that they couldn't play the positions that required greater intellect, which sums up the the mindset of the day. So you know, middle linebacker, centre, quarterback, safety, you know. Those positions were really off limits. Um, there were there were rare cases where players were allowed to play those positions, but but it certainly didn't didn't happen as often. Have as... you um, just to have interest? Sorry on a on a point on this. Have you seen any of those NFL 100 round tables that they've been doing the NFL Network? And no, no, yeah, I've watched, I've watched I've watched like up until three weeks ago every NFL 100 program, but I'm putting them all on my iPad for traveling. Ah, I'm makes sense. Soon. Yeah. So they've the, so the round table they do the linebackers one which is Ray Lawrence uh Lawrence Taylor Mike Singletree Mike Singletary but also Willie Lanier is yeah. is fascinating on that exact point you were making that when Willie Lanier and, and Singletary talk about coming up they're saying that there were no black players at their position that yeah. they could uh, aspire to essentially. I mean L- 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 Lanier was the was the first I think. Um there's two guys um, I think it was McClinton as well, but yeah, he was. I'm pretty sure he was the first black middle linebacker, so he was, he was an iconic example of that. Um, and I guess the other element that the the black players, you know, we're into the 70s now, and and football really is undergoing this revolution in terms of commercial opportunities for players. Um, but it just didn't apply to black players. I mean, Otis Taylor, this, another Chiefs guy, star wide receiver, once said. I'm a premier receiver, they say, or a premier this or that, but I'm a black man. I can't express myself. I can't do anything. People always ask me what I've endorsed. I haven't even endorsed a dog food commercial, and that's pretty sorry for a guy who would be so happy to do one. He'd eat, he'd eat the dog food. Now, that sums up where it was at the time. Now, to get a perspective on that, because I think that is as important as the on-field stuff, um, I chatted to, to Lee Steinberg, the, the, the super agent who... There, Jerry Maguire's based on it, and this this was the era when Steinberg really set up his practice and started to be an agent. So I just I just asked him what was the landscape like for black players in terms of the commercial opportunities, and this is what he had to say. I think it's uh, true to say that the NFL, which currently dominates um, America's taste and viewing patterns, was much lesser a factor then than it is today. So that today, in an average week, um, five of the top ten Nielsen nighttime television-rated shows are NFL football games or pregame shows. Um, The dominant sport then was baseball. And so there were many more commercial opportunities for baseball stars, uh, the Hank Aarons of the world, the Willie Mays's than there were for uh, football players. 
Um, the other thing that happened was that the position in pro football that has the most um, name recognition and lends to the most marketing and endorsement opportunities is the quarterback position. And there was a generalized um, feeling in certain circles that African Americans uh, weren't the best candidates for the so-called thinking positions uh, in football. And, and it's quarterback and then middle linebacker and then safety and then center. Um, and it was never overtly expressed, but the fact was that there were you know, virtually no black starting quarterback. Lee Steinberg speaking with you, Matt Sherry. We'll pick up on that point about stacking players in a second, but let's continue on the commercial opportunities. What what made the big difference on this? Um, O.J. Simpson, really? That's the, the great irony. Um, I, I, given... mean, I mean, a man who did once say, I'm not black, I'm O.J. So... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that I think what I find, and, and I wrote a little bit on this in the book, is, uh, you know, 10 years earlier, Jim Brown was a superstar. It wasn't just a... He was a transcendent superstar. He, he, he was in Hollywood movies afterwards. But even he didn't manage to gain the commercial notoriety. And what's interesting is the contrast between those two. You know, Jim Brown was you know black consciousness exemplified you know he it was kind of outspoken willing to say what he thought whereas you know OJ was the opposite I mean he, he assimilated with with rich white men very easily and was the natural person again at the time to uh, to really lead lead the way in terms of giving black players commercial opportunities OJ has come up randomly in about four or five different interviews and I mean, it's very, very interesting what people have to say about him and how surprised they are by what eventually happened with him. Um, but yeah, certainly in this sense, he was huge. And then on the back of that, a guy who we can all get behind, which is Mean Joe Green, who was probably He's just still... we shouldn't get behind OJ Simpson. <laughs> I mean, I do, love his, Twitter. I, I, I do love his Twitter account, but yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, but yeah, Mean Joe Green the next year does a Pepsi commercial, a famous one with a with a small white child in which he's snarling, and then they have this great moment at the end. People can check that out online, and and I would say those two collectively changed the landscape, and certainly that was the the view of Steinberg, who who discussed that point in later on in our conversation. I think it was the O.J. Simpson commercials. Um, O.J. Simpson. Um, if you can put away for a second what happened later, um, was one of the big commercial stars in America. And the Hertz commercials or Dingo Boots or a whole variety of different um, uh, ads he ran were ubiquitous. So they were everywhere. And um, um, it's... and, and, and he he broke the ground in some ways because uh, he was a handsome, uh, charming personality uh, with a big smile that um, really broke the barrier, and it became clear that that white audiences would respond to black superstars. Lee Steinberg speaking, speaking. Hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Why am I struggling today? Uh, Lee Steinberg speaking with us. You're listening to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron. Will Gavin, Matt Sherry with me. So both Bobby Bell and Lee Steinberg have spoken about the idea of black players not being allowed to play those thinking positions, such as middle linebacker, safety, quarterback. So what changed that? Great players. I mean, Lanier is the, the prime example. It, it wasn't just that he was a black middle linebacker. He was a brilliant middle linebacker. And, and then what we see is with guys like that, it, it reaches the point where, you know, they go from ex-black middle linebacker to just middle linebacker because the great players. Lanier was an example. It took, it took coaches as well, you know. I mean, the guy we're going to speak to next was, was I think, the third or fourth middle linebacker in Harry Carson, another Hall of Famer. He he exemplifies that it takes a coach to give them the opportunity, and, and the coach for him was was Marty Schottenheimer, who was the Giants' defensive coordinator at the time. I mean, Carson was a defensive end in college, so that was an even more unusual case where Schottenheimer was basically allowed to draft a player, loved Harry Carson, but moved him to middle linebacker, which was just unheard of at the time. So, so yeah, let's let's hear from Harry Carson about his role as one of the trailblazers and what that means to him. It was not lost on me that I was being asked to play a position that I'd never played before. And that was the middle linebacker position when I was drafted to play with the Giants. Yeah. I had been a defense I'd been a defensive lineman in an altogether different um position. And then um when I was drafted by the Giants, my coach at that time was Marty Schottenheimer. Okay. Marty, Marty Schottenheimer was the defensive coordinator. And when the draft took place, um, the Giants gave Marty one of the draft picks to choose whoever he wanted to play defense. And so Marty used that pick, which was the 104th pick in the 1976 NFL draft, to draft me to play a position that I'd never played before. Yeah. And so when I was drafted, you know, I came to training camp and I thought I was going to be a defensive end and Marty pulled me aside and he asked me if I would come back and spend time with him prior to uh, training camp because he wanted to see me at the middle linebacker position. Now, that move was bold to Marty because up until that point, there had, there had never been a black middle linebacker in New York with the New York Giants. Yeah. And, and obviously... There had never been... There had never been... Actually... In retrospect, I was the third black middle linebacker to play in the National Football League. 
You're listening to the NFL 100 show. Harry Carson speaking there. Uh, that's obviously the middle linebacker position, but but nowhere was the journey harder for acceptance, uh, it seemed, Matt Sherry, than, uh, than at the quarterback position. No, I mean, and Kenny Washington, who I mentioned earlier, I think sums this up. You know, there were a lot of people at the time who said he was the greatest deep ball passer in the history of, of football. Um, I mean... You know, he wasn't a quarterback in the traditional sense because the, the, that was just the era, but he was a fascinating guy. I mean, I'd, I'd, if if you were going to write a separate book on a figure historically, he would be he would be an interesting one to do it on. Um, I mean, he was also considered a better baseball prospect than Jackie Robinson, who was, his, as I said, his UCLA Bruins teammate. So, so yeah, I think he summed it up in the early years. But then there's other ones. You know, James Harris, a guy who became the the first Pro Bowler eventually. Um, I think the frustrating part is there are so many examples of players where they were either just drafted and never given an opportunity, or even when they were given an opportunity, it still didn't work out. I mean, Marlon Briscoe played for the Denver Broncos. He had a really nice first season as a starter and then suddenly was just like, you know, not playing quarterback next year, ends up getting traded to the Bills, I think, as a wide receiver. Um, and that was the landscape. I mean, it would be there was spells where it was like fifteen years between one back player throwing a pass in it and another doing it. So yeah, it, it was just a long old journey for the quarterbacks. I mean, I, I want people to read and buy the book, but I do explain it all in there um, when that comes out in August. But but two guys changed it who ironically came out of college in the same year and took very different routes to to what I guess you would call their, their defining moments. And, and those guys were Doug Williams and, and Warren Moon. Williams, remarkably, was, was a first-round pick in 1978. I mean, there'd never been a, quarter, a black quarterback taken above the sixth round at that point. So, so he really shattered the mould before he ever got into an NFL field. And then, and then Moon's a different case. Um, he really... He... he essentially realised he was only going to be a later round pick and ends up going to going to Canada and, and and ditching the NFL. A great moment happens for him that he doesn't get drafted, even though he's signed for Canada because had he of an NFL team would have held his rights. That doesn't happen and he has this amazing career in Canada, then comes back to the NFL as the highest paid player in history. And his agent was was Lee Steinberg who we've heard from. So let's just let's just hear a little bit about about Warren Moon from, from Steinbeck, who, who really talks about the impact that he had for black players down the line and, and the, the, the work that he did to ensure that other people got opportunities because of, of, of his excellence. So part of it was just the way he carried himself. Um, he was the only brother among like four sisters. Yeah. And he had always been a Yoda-like figure where he gave out advice to everybody. So he quickly became the equivalent of almost student body president of the National Football League. There were people uh, on his own team and other teams who all went to him for advice. Um, and and he also crisscrossed the country in the offseason doing, um, he made up for the six years in Canada by doing every speaking appearance, every banquet, uh, you know, lots of endorsements. So he was everywhere. And so um, he was interviewed continuously. He was appeared in cities across the country. So he became symbolically um, a icon and a, a stimulus to young black quarterbacks growing up. And there were 
situations where I went to recruit in the years that came a young um, black quarterback, and I would see in his home he had like Martin Luther King's poster and Warren Moon's poster. Yeah. So you could see the effect he was having. And he went out of his way to mentor other young black quarterbacks. And um, it, uh, um, he reached out to, you know, young college players. He reached out to young pro black quarterbacks and became a mentor to a lot of them. So he, it wasn't just his example. It was, you know, in the same way that he got involved in Cam Newton's life, uh, you know, some years back, he became a figure that they all looked to and leaned on. And um, um, it uh, because he was so uh, talented, um, um, but his, the way he carried himself as a teammate and then as a public figure also uh, helped stimulate the uh, 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 his impact on a whole generation of uh, younger people in that, you know, a huge Rolodex and, uh, and uh, kept in touch with uh, 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 all sorts of people. I mean, just the effect it had on our practice, I probably ended up with 25 players over the years from a ref referral from Warren. Yeah, absolutely. And... And, and and I guess you know a point you made earlier that really I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about, but I guess the the unseen part of the legacy as well is, you know, when a when a young kid in high school who's a who's a black kid looks good throwing the football, that the coach suddenly isn't going to put him at tight end because he's six foot three. He's going to think, well, I, I watch Warren Moon and, and he can be a great quarterback. It was a critical shift because until that with the occasional exception of a Shaq Harris or a Doug Williams, um, the big star quarterbacks that were African-American in, in college were playing in a different system. Yeah. And so, you know, there were a series of five. Lee Steinberg again speaking with us for the NFL 100 show. So we're talking a bit about Warren Moon there, but let's talk about Doug Williams because in 1987, we see Doug Williams become the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Yeah, just a, an interesting uh, guy all round. Um, he was brought up in Zachary, Louisiana, which is a place we've been to. We'll see a high school game there. Um, we have indeed. A wonderful, uh, wonderful facility in school. Um, it wasn't a wonderful place for, for black people at that time. You know, Williams spoke about how he was in a, a section of town where there was, there was kind of a white section either side, and every Friday night they would, they would burn crosses on either side of the town on the, the on the highways and stuff um on the borders sorry of the town um his journey to to winning this super bowl is is interesting you know i mentioned he broke the mold by being that first round pick well he would encounter the the elements that we've discussed in this podcast in the nfl as well you know tampa bay select him with with a first round pick and he leads them as an expansion franchise which we've discussed previously how difficult it was as an expansive franchise in the 70s he leads them to the nfc championship game pretty quickly but then come contract time he's not happy that he's I mean, he was vastly underpaid. He, he wasn't just the lowest paid starter in the NFL. He was paid a lot less than, than several backups. So he ends up in this contract dispute, just 
just then has this tragic incident of his wife dying unexpectedly of a brain tumour, takes a year out of football and then ends up having to sign, sign for the USFL to try and rebuild his reputation. Um, I mean, it's in, it's, I think it's important to state that Williams wasn't as good a quarterback as Warren Moon by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Moon came back to the NFL and became one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Williams was very much held a skelter. You know, he would throw a lot of interceptions. He would make a lot of amazing plays as well. But he... But he he, he wasn't. It wasn't as if he went to the USFL and NFL teams were turning down a guy who was Joe Montana. You know, he as a player he'd been good and he'd had some good moments and and certainly gone through some horrific personal tragedy. But it wasn't like he was a slam dunk. He has to be a starter of a team. Um, a little bit. A little bit. I guess like what you would say about the Kaepernick thing in the modern era, where you would you would say that you could make both arguments. That one, it's outright keeping him out of the league and not wanting him to kneel for the anthem, and two. Is he actually that great a quarterback? I would say that's really where Williams stood at the time. And after the USFL folds, he signs he signs for Washington. And, and as a backup quarterback, knows he's a backup quarterback. Um, the reason he signed for Washington is Joe Gibbs was the OC who got him in at Tampa Bay and and maintained that relationship. But he, he, he knew he was going to be a backup. But then... You know, Jay Schrader, the the starter, gets injured in the ninth, in the first week of the nineteen eighty seven season. Williams comes in, wins the game. You have this whole season long back and forth battle where Gibbs rotates between the two quarterbacks, and then eventually Williams wins the job at the end of the at the end of the season, and and then has this great playoff run, and it's a playoff run that that really jumps in the face of people who had said that he wasn't capable of winning in the big moments. That was certainly something that had blighted his career to that point, that accusation. But he made big plays against the Bears in, in, in the first playoff game and, and then eventually leads leads Washington. I think they played the Vikings as well in the in the championship game and, and he leads them to the Super Bowl against the, the Denver Broncos. And a, a game that is just unusual. Uh, he got injured towards the end of the first quarter, uh, hurt his knee. And by the time he came back into the game early in the second quarter, John Elway had put Denver 10-0 ahead. They were in in command and then there's just this outrageous outrageous second quarter in which Williams almost just takes the game on his own back and 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 wins the game himself um I'll I'll get the numbers up now on the on the quarter but uh, you know I think he completes something like 20 of 22 passes for 220 yards and four touchdowns and just completely puts the game out of reach and and yeah, it ends up being this incredible, incredible moment of him becoming the first black quarterback to win the Super Bowl. And and yeah, and and I think the 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 interesting element of of the whole storyline is is just how much Williams kept his composure through the week because it was a media circus. The fact that he was going to be the going to be the first black quarterback. It was the only storyline. At one point, a reporter literally referred to him as Black Doug. Um, one reporter prefaced a question by saying, "Obviously, you've been a black quarterback all of your life." Like it was just, <laughs> it's just like absolute insanity what went on. And Williams just completely kept his cool, tried to play it down, and and did all of that stuff. Just the the numbers on this second quarter will ten of eleven passes for two hundred and twenty eight yards and four touchdowns. It was just wow, an insane run, and, and they end up absolutely blown the Broncos out. And and I think that. There are a couple of poignant moments at the end of this game. One, um, one of the absolute legends of 
in the history of this battle for for black players was Eddie Robinson, the, the long-time coach at Grambling, who who coached Williams at the university. And, and Robinson saw him in the tunnel as he was going back in. And th- those two shared a moment where they were crying and, and, and Robinson referred to him as the Jackie... Jackie Robinson of football, which I thought was a lovely moment, and then, and then I think one of the more memorable moments is when when Williams is interviewed in the locker room after the game. Keith Jackson, the legendary broadcaster, says to him, "May I say to you, sir, you've handled your week of personal your personal week of history nobly." And that that was a really big moment, you know, an Asian white broadcaster referring to a black player as sir on national television after he just won the Super Bowl. And it was just an incredible, incredible moment. So we haven't got... The, the reason this podcast was delayed is because I only spoke to Williams yesterday, so I haven't managed to go back through the audio. But I, we can just play a little snippet of my interview with, with Doug Williams talking about how, as the years have gone on, he's come to understand that the importance of that moment. Well, well let me say this. I, I can appreciate it, sure, but, but I don't know how much um, America appreciated it and look at it. You know, but, but that's not going to worry me. I think uh, it's bigger than what a lot of people might play it up to be. But for me, I know what it's about. I, I, I was the one that was involved, and I do cherish that moment. Yeah, and you you spoke about, you know, that the Martin Luther King talked about the mountaintop and you finally finally hitting it. It, it just felt like an incredibly poignant thing that, that happened in the in the way it went down as well. Oh, it was, it was perfect timing. You know, you're right. Growing up, like I say, doing the civil rights, and you listen to the Martin Luther King speech when he talk about the mountaintop. Um, if it came to uh, professional football and, and the Super Bowl, that was the mountaintop. And I felt like as far as that was concerned, I had reached it. Yeah. Doug Williams speaking with Matt Sherry. And I think at some point we'll just put that whole interview out because it, it, it's a fantastic get. Obviously, the, the current man in charge of the front office in Washington. And it did take a little while to put that together. But you can understand why. Because he's a busy man yeah. with, you know, left tackles to not trade and all of that. A very, uh, nice, a very nice man, though. And also, I don't think you should, we should blame Doug Williams for some of the things. No, no, happening. I know. I, I know. I'm just having a bit of fun. And I'm sure, based on what a lovely man he supposedly is, he would appreciate it. Um, we should also touch upon coaching because, um, we, obviously, when we talk about the NFL with people here in the UK, one of the things that often comes up, I know, from my side working in the media is the, is the Rooney rule and, and coaching and front offices because we, we basically kind of saw the same thing we've discussed happen with coaches in the NFL. It just took longer to resolve. Yeah, I mean, even more so, arguably. You know, the Rooney Rule didn't come in until 2003. The only reason it did come in is because two attorneys um, just delivered a scathing study of the NFL's hiring practices um, after Dungey was fired by the Buccaneers. Um, so, yeah, Dungey is an important guy in that. I mean, not only does he does he indirectly lead to the Rooney Rule, and it's worth saying that the praise for the Rooney Rule should go to both Rooney and Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, who whose own stance on racism was, was best exemplified in the early 90s by him stripping um, Phoenix of a Super Bowl because they refused to acknowledge Martin Luther King Day as a holiday. I mean, that sums up. that That's an enormous stand for an NFL commissioner to take. So I don't think it was necessarily, you know, it wasn't a, a tactical thing from the NFL because at the very top of the leadership, they were, they were very, you know, 
they weren't discriminatory in any way. I just think it was a situation that was kind of allowed to happen without people really noticing it. But the Rooney rule has, has certainly changed that. And, and what's also changed that is is Tony Dungy goes to Indianapolis and in two, 2006 season becomes the first black coach to win a Super Bowl. So he does what Doug Williams did for quarterbacks. And here is Tony Dungy talking about the importance of that on, on his career right now. It did. I, I certainly felt that. Uh, I mentioned in my Hall of Fame speech, uh, my first year playing in 1977, there were 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire league. So, you know, in 2018, there were 18 teams that didn't even have an African-American coach on their staff. So that's where we started. And coming from that and watching guys, you know, evolve and not get an opportunity to be a head coach, um, to know that I was representing all of those men, it, it, it felt very special. And I, it was a proud moment, no doubt. Tony Dungy speaking to us for the NFL 100 show from Gridiron. Uh, Sherry, a uh, good episode, really good, enjoyable, fun one. And we're going to have another one tomorrow. So people getting a double lock of NFL 100 after we fell a week behind. Uh, this one, we're going to we move from... Uh, one of our conceptual episodes back into one of our more team-based episodes, and it's a team that we've not discussed much yet, but one of the great dynasties or dynasties, depending on which side of the pond you are, from the NFL, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, we're going to do one part of the Steelers dynasty, and we will do a second part of it in a future episode. Ah, okay. Interesting. Speaking to uh, the interview, which ended with my very favorite moment uh, in all of the interviews you've done. And I don't want to say that we should question the integrity of anything this man did say during the interview, because I'm sure it's all true. But he did say to you at the end uh, that it was fun. And he said, if you ever need anything else, just want me to make some ish up, then uh, then just give me a call. Which I was a huge fan of. That's Terry Bradshaw Uh, for people. Oh, I was going to leave it dangling, but fine. We've got Terry Bradshaw and Franco Harris coming up talking about the Steelers. Plus, we'll have our episode at the end of the week. Looking forward to the weekend's action. Uh, And don't forget that in the coming episodes, we're hopefully going to have a little bit of uh, on-the-road audio from Matt Sherry, who's going to be going on the Gridiron Tour. They set off at the end of this week, saw a couple of the guys at the Gridiron Party this week who are looking forward to the tour, couldn't wait for it. Uh, starting off in Lambeau for that Packers-Panthers game. Dead excited for you, buddy. Uh, we will, um, Well, we've got another podcast to do first, so I don't know why I'm bidding you farewell now. But, uh, yeah, just keep an eye across all our social, etc., for some stonking content from there. And keep an eye out for the tomorrow's show. Thank you for listening. This has been the NFL 100 Show. Oh, motherfucker!